The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I was born in the and welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Actually, it is me live today for the last two weeks. You have been hearing encore performances of uh, Dr. Carol's Couch because I have been in London receiving an award uh, for my book, my new children's book on terrorism, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. I won the London Book Festival Award, and then I did book signings, and uh, I went to, I donated the book to some places, and I um, went to Manchester because, of course, that was where the horrid Ariana Grande concert terror attack was, and I donated the book to the library and the mayors and so on. And and I was on Good Morning Britain, which was a very interesting experience because um, it was a it was a debate. <laughs> Silly me, I didn't think there was anything to debate about children needing to learn about terrorism because uh, they see it on television all the time when they hear about it and they see it on the internet and certainly in London um, I mean the book is available internationally but certainly in London where I was on Great Good Morning Britain um, it seemed to me that there should be no question that it's because it's so much smaller than let's say the United States as a whole um, that children have been exposed to terror attacks and um, are confused by it and uh Nobody is talking to them, which makes them stuff their feelings down, and that can cause deep psychological problems. Well, enough about me and that. It was just, it was a wonderful trip. It was very interesting to, um, I went to a terrorism conference at the end of the, uh, it was almost two weeks, and um, it was very interesting to see the attitudes of people in uh, Britain about terrorism. But I will save that for another, another show, because today... Um, I, my guest has also just won a prize um, and uh, she, for her new book, which just came out a week ago. Um, her name is Sandra Joseph, and you know her better as the lead um, in Phantom of the Opera. And her new book is called Unmasking What Matters, Ten Life Lessons from Ten Years on Broadway. Now, um, I was just chatting with Sandra about <laughs> trying to figure out if she was in the performance of uh, Phantom of the Opera that I saw in Los Angeles, and it, it, it's been in Los Angeles a few times, so it's not clear whether she was or not, but uh, it was an amazing, one of my favorite musicals, and, um, and she, of course, you know, I mean, we've all heard you sing, whether, whether we saw the Broadway version or not, we've heard you on, on uh, DVDs and, and, you know, just all over. Um, so what's interesting is that Sandra, after she was, she was in this role for 10 years. I mean, can you, I hope you've seen Phantom of the Opera, um, and if you have, you, I'm sure you can... Uh, Imagine, or try to imagine in any case, it's hard to imagine, what um, 10 years doing this show six nights a week, um, more than 1,300 performances. Uh, I mean, she she is, in fact, the longest-running leading lady in the longest-running Broadway show of all time. And now she has a book and a mission and her mission is to empower other people's voices. 
because she has a very interesting story that we'll start off with, which is that she um, need to find, need, needed to find a way to empower her own voice before she took that role. And I, you know, I don't mean it so much in terms of <laughs> singing lessons. I mean in terms of stepping out of the darkness and unmasking yourself. So, Sandra, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Carol. I'm very excited to be having this conversation with you today. Well, good. Well, let's start with that. Once upon a time, (laughs) you were born. (laughs) um, And just take us back to your childhood and where you were born and, you know, when you decided you you wanted to uh, sing or when you decided you wanted to be an actress, all of that, and how you struggled with it. Sure. I grew up in Detroit, and uh, in the beginning, not the suburbs of Detroit, but Detroit, Detroit, and uh, I had a, a one older sister, family of four, in a very small uh, bottom half of a duplex, two-bedroom, maybe 600 square feet, um, so my family struggled initially. I didn't know that we were struggling, but um, on occasion... Fortune would smile, and my cousin, who worked for a radio station, would get free tickets to the theater. And my, mm. my dad especially loved the theater. He loved acting and actors and singing. He was playing Sinatra around the house all the time and, and playing movie musicals on TV. And he actually did some theater himself around Detroit and local productions, And whenever there was an opportunity, we would go to the theater. And when I was about eight years old, we saw the national tour of the musical Annie, and that was it. I just, everything in my little body buzzed, and I said, I want to do that. Whatever that is up there, that's, that's the thing for me. So I knew from an early age that I wanted to do it, but I really didn't think, I would ever be able to do it or have the courage to step out. My older sister was the outgoing one. I was the one hiding behind my mom, and I mm. didn't want strangers to look at me. I'm very shy and anxious and unsure of myself. So the battle was on from a very early age for me. And? <laughs> and? and. And, well, I actually said out loud for the first time on the, on the ride home from seeing Annie, um, my dad, I was very fortunate to have a dad who was always paying attention to what was going on with me, and he noticed that something was up. And he asked me, did, you know, he said, Don't, didn't you like the show? What, what's the matter? And, and I was emotional. I said, I know what I want to do with my life, but I'm never, I'll never be able to do that. You know, because by then it started to, think in that probably every kid in that theater <laughs> saw the kids up there on stage and thought that looked like the most fun thing in the world. Um, but my dad just had a way of giving me courage. And he was that, that first person who really saw behind my mask and, and believed in me before I could believe in myself. And his faith in me gave me just that first initial little spark of hope. And I was actually given my first little solo, it was about three lines, in the fifth grade Christmas concert, which happened just a couple years later. But right before the concert was about to start, I was in the hallway, took a look inside the gym where we were going to do the concert, and I panicked when I saw the crowd. And I ran over to my music teacher Mrs. Maters, and I, I asked her to replace me because oh. I, I just absolutely could not. I, I knew that there was no way I could make a sound come out of my mouth at that moment. <laughs> so, oh, wow. So yeah. she did. So she, she gave someone else the solo that I had, had worked on, and, and I think something clicked for me at that young age where I just felt like, okay, I know what it is to give up out of fear, and I don't ever want to feel that way again. I want to make sure that in the future, I am prepared to move through my fear. No matter how afraid I feel, I'm not going to let the fear win. 
And I made that promise to myself at a very young age, and that has really guided my steps along the entire journey. And it's, not, it's a promise I still have to keep to, to myself because I still do things that make me feel uneasy and unsure whenever we're stepping into something new and unknown. We feel that vulnerability come up. So, and there's a, there's a tendency to run away and say, no, 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 this, this, this was a bad idea. I'm not going <laughs> to chicken out. But I, I continue to say yes, even when I'm afraid. That's an amazing, amazing story. Now, had you, um, like, before you got this solo, um, mm-hmm. I mean, did you have to try out for it? Had you been trying out for things in school? No, I, I, I did have to try out for that solo, as I recall. In, in my mind, I, I think that I did. I mean, memory is such a tricky thing, as we know. I'm still in touch with Mrs. Maders, by the way, my fifth grade music teacher. In uh, fact, I, I was in New York last week for Phantom's 30th anniversary celebration and for the release of my book. And Mrs. Maders saw on Facebook that I was going to be there and turns out she was in New York at the same time. So she came over and met me at the theater and we were able to take a picture. My photo is still outside of the Majestic Theater in New York. And she met me there, and we took a picture together, and it was wow. just such a sweet, sweet reunion. And she remembers vaguely, but she she remembers when I I chickened out of that solo. Uh, but but <laughs> oh, I knew wow. I loved singing from a young yeah. age. I was always singing, but only in front of my stuffed animals in my room. I you know, but I I did know early on. I think that I loved it, whether or not I felt like I had a voice or I, I think I just sort of thought everybody could sing. Um, but I, I did start working on matching the sounds I heard on the radio. Like in the day it was Olivia Newton, John and, you know, Johnny and Marie, I would try to sound like Marie. And uh-huh. So, um, I mean, had people been even those, like, when did people start, when did you have to start trying out like in school or when did um, people start, taking note, you know, saying, oh, you have a beautiful voice. It's hard to say. It's hard to remember. My sister also sang, and she was two, two and a half years older, so her voice started to develop before mine, and I knew that she could sing, and she and I would always sing along to the radio together. But I didn't, you know, I started very late compared to what the kids, you know, nowadays they're doing shows from the time they can walk. That was not yeah. the case for me. I didn't actually play a leading role in a musical until I was 16. That was the first time that I auditioned for something. And as it turned out, the musical in my high school that year was Annie. So oh, I got wow. to play my, my dream role <laughs> no, <I'll laughs> right out of the gate. Story. I, I um, grew up, I was born and raised in New York. And um, my family used to go to the theater a lot. And I saw Annie, and I saw lots of other, you know, plays, where musicals where there were kids. And I said the same thing to, to myself. I wanted to do that. I want to be that. Of course, my parents had a different attitude. They thought I was going to starve in a garret if I pursued that, which probably I would have. And so they weren't very encouraging. Which, again, was probably a good thing, although along the way I have managed to do amateur kinds of stuff. But, um, but yes, I was one of those kids sitting in the theater saying, ooh, ooh, <laughs> yes, that's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, I think that that is such a common story that so many people have some inkling of wanting to, do, wanting to perform in some way or wanting to sing or act or be on stage it's play right doing a play is play it's fun it's make-believe it's all Mm -hmm. of those things that light us up as children and doing it for fun as a kid versus trying to pursue it as a profession those are two very different things and honestly I think the only reason that my father encouraged me all along the way as he did is because he hated the work that he was doing and he mm. desperately wanted me and my sister to find work that we loved and to at least give it a shot. 
And once I was in high school and I started doing, I started taking private voice lessons when I was 16, then my teachers, the choir director, the drama teacher, they talked to my parents about perhaps sending me to a performing arts school. Like they uh-huh. knew that I, I loved it and, and clearly had some sort of natural ability for it, but still my own insecurity held me back. I did not want any part of going to a performing arts high school. I was way too scared to do that. I thought the competition would be overwhelming and just changing schools would have scared me. And, And I actually did not major in music or theater in college. I went on to get a communications degree. Um, again, out of the fear of admitting, I want to try to make a living doing this. I mean, that just seemed outrageous. Even going to New York seemed like the other side of the world. I didn't know anybody who'd been there. It seemed like this crazy, faraway, glamorous dream place to go. (laughs) Well, now, is that what, when you, so your first role in a musical, Annie, um, that was in New York or that? Oh, no, that was a high school production. That was a high school production. Okay, so... In Michigan. Okay, (laughs) so when you were 16 and you started taking lessons, then certainly, I mean, were you talking about or was your family talking about that this could be a career or were you taking the lessons um, just for singing in in various school plays and so on? I, I think I was really taking the lessons for the love of doing it. I wanted to see how good I could get, what, what I could learn, and how I could develop my voice. I didn't know what I was doing. So uh-huh. I, I wanted to sort of explore this, this instrument that I had. So it was really for fun and, and to do a, a great job at, in the plays that I was doing, in the musicals I was doing. Um, and I did think about majoring in music for a minute or, or in theater, uh, but ultimately... I just decided to have something to fall back on and get that communication to her. Uh-huh. But I knew, I did know in my heart all along that what I really wanted was to try to be able to support myself doing something I'd love to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so when I, was the first, um, so then you, there you were in college studying communications. When, when did you make this shift? Like when... Um, you know, when did you audition for a, a real show? My dad suggested after I graduated that I give myself five years to go for it and go to New York and audition for everything. And if nothing happened in five years' time, then I could come back home and figure out plan B. So after college, I went off to New York and I started auditioning and getting rejected. <laughs> I, I got a couple of little things, like singing and dancing at a cruise ship show. I was on a ship for six months, and mm. I got some regional theater stuff outside of New York City. Mm-hmm. And eventually, eventually, I was uh, truly at the four-and-a-half-year mark when I was about to give up. I was given the opportunity to audition for Christine and Phantom. Oh, my God. Your life is so dramatic. We're going to be hearing more about this between that and your husband. No, I'm not going to give that away yet. Um, <laughs> this is really amazing. Okay, we do need to take a break, however. My guest is Sandra Joseph. Her book, her new book is called Unmasking What Matters, 10 Life Lessons from 10 Years on Broadway. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? 
call the Terrorism Hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I'm sure that you are as eager to get back to my guest, Sandra Joseph, as I am. She, we've been talking about how she went from crippling stage fright to become a record-breaking Broadway star by playing Christine Daae in The Phantom of the Opera. And um, an amazing, amazing um, theater, theatrical event, you know, musical doesn't quite do it justice. Um, we were talking just before the break about how your father had suggested that you uh, spend five years in New York uh, to give an audition and to give yourself a chance to um, have a singing career and a singing musical, musical actress uh, um, career. And uh, you were starting to say about how Six months before the five years were up, you uh, auditioned and got the role of Christine. Well, it, it didn't happen on the first try, but I did audition. I did get that audition. And, it, you know, the, the fear, it sounds like the fear went away, right? Like, I, I made this decision and this promise to myself, I'm not going to let my fear win. And then I lived fearlessly ever after. And, <laughs> you know, as a psychiatrist, psychologist, you know that it does not work that way. Right. So uh, it did not ever really go away. And when I was standing on a Broadway stage for the first time, I was so overwhelmed by the fact that I was even standing there and it felt way too big for me. I felt completely intimidated. And I think when, when those voices come up of I'm not enough, I'm not good enough to be mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. it causes us to get in our own way. And I was kind of frozen stiff during the headlights at that first audition. Um, I did not get the part. Uh, they did, however, give me a role in the ensemble in the, on the national tour. Mm. So... I didn't get the lead, and in retrospect, I really wasn't ready for it. I, I really was quite green at that point and had no idea what it takes to, do, to perform eight shows a week. So I'm very grateful that I, I got to go into the ensemble and slowly learn the ropes and get my feet wet. And after about a year of being in the ensemble, they asked me to audition again because the mm. role of Christine was opening up again. And the second time, I was determined that I was not going to be frozen and deer in the headlights. So I had sort of pre-planned everything that I was going to do. Every move that I made was calculated in advance. And I even, like, put Vaseline on my teeth and gums because the first time my mouth was so dry from the nerves <laughs> that my lip got stuck to my teeth. So I was like, prepared for everything. But what ended up happening that time is, you know, when you try to control something within an inch of its life, again, it comes out of that fear of not being enough Mm. and and kind of, I pushed. I was trying to prove myself, trying desperately to show them that I was good enough. And I ended up going over the top and being kind of 
contrived. And what you need in a performance is to be in that flow state where you're not pre-planning everything. You're allowing that spark of aliveness that audiences feel in the theater. Yeah. That's what yeah. they connect to. You know, we can sense when someone is putting on a show in some way versus when they're actually bringing their open, vulnerable heart into it. Yes. So I didn't get the part even the second time, and they sent me back to the ensemble. <laughs> I was, uh-huh. I was de- devastated, just so crushed and mad at myself for screwing up the second time, and I really thought, that's it, I'm not, I'm not going to get another chance. Uh-huh. And they, con- they continued the search for Christine. They had more and more auditions. But as it turned out, they came back to me a third time and said, you know, we, we see something in you. We can tell you're getting in your own way in these auditions. Mm. We want to bring you back in and give you one more shot at this. And we just want you to stop trying so hard and bring your real self into the room <laughs> and, huh. and, and just be. So that was a profound lesson for me to to really let go of trying to prove myself, trying to push the river, you know, I love that expression of don't push the river <laughs> and just allow what was meant to be to be. And, and, and I really did pray and write in my journal, you know, if this is meant for me, let it be. And, and if not, then help me to let go of it. Mm. And I was able, I think, in that third audition to bring a little more, of course, I still wanted the part badly, but I brought a little more of an element of surrender and letting go of the attachment and the clinging, the grasping energy. Uh-huh. And I was supposed to be in the moment and spontaneous, and I felt the scene coming alive. It was actually not the best singing that I'd done of the three auditions. My voice was not, my physical voice was not as, uh, as finessed as I would have liked, uh-huh. but, but my heart was there. I was present for the first time and in my body, and I was authentic, and I, I believe that's what made the difference for me. And finally, after that third audition, they, they gave me the role. <laughs> wow. That, that is a great story. Now, let's go back for a second to your sister, because what did she end up doing with singing, and what did she end up uh, becoming? You know, my sister fell in love at a young age, got married, and had two children, and she raised two amazing boys, my nephews, Joey and Michael, and now she works for a law firm, and she sings a little bit on the side, but she never really wanted to pursue it in the way that I did. I was really desperately in love with it. And I think you have to be completely, hopelessly in love with it if you want to try to make a career of it because it does have to take center stage in your life for a very long time. And it, it, does, it will require a lot of moving through rejection and getting knocked down and standing in those cattle call lines. And I'm, I'm grateful for her that that was not a part of her path. <laughs> she, well, not that being a mother is an easy path. I think she chose the far, the far more difficult profession, <laughs> raising good kids. Now, did you somewhere, you know, in this journey, on this journey, did you, um, when she, you know, when she got married and she went on that branch, um, was there... Was there, like, did you have to overcome uh, feelings of guilt or feelings of, you know, that you were surpassing her in something that at one time you both uh, had a love for, even though, of course, yours was obviously stronger? But do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a great question. I have to say I'm so blessed that my sister and I have the relationship that we do because she really is my nearest and dearest best friend, and there, there wasn't that sense of competition between us. We just had separate visions for our future. Even though we both loved it as kids, 
as we got older, it, it was very clear that we were veering in different directions. And, and I don't think she has ever had a moment of jealousy or wishing she had, that had happened for her. I think she has just had been nothing but my biggest cheerleader. And she's the one that I go to when I feel like I'm falling apart and it's all too scary, whatever it is that I'm doing. She's, she's been my soft place to fall. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really grateful that it never felt that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Um, now tell us about, you know, in, in your bio, let's see, where is that part where it says, uh, oh, wait, I find that, where's that page, where it says that you're married um, to your husband and you live in Southern California. And uh, it mentions his name. Oh, here we go. Uh, the Phantom of the Opera actor, Ron Bomer. Um, oh, wait, here. Sandra is married to her co-star from The Phantom of the Opera, actor Ron Bomer. They currently reside in Southern California. Okay, so I didn't know and I didn't have a chance to look it up who, what part Ron Bomer played. And so tell us the story. This is like two, I'm not making this up, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when I was on the national tour, we played the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., and the show was getting a new phantom. Uh, the phantom, the current actor who had played the role was leaving, and a new actor was brought in named Ron Bomer, and he and I met on the stage of the Kennedy Center in rehearsals when he was coming in to join the show, and we had some really amazing chemistry, and the rest is history. We, we were together for five years before we got married, and now we've been married for 15 years. <laughs> oh, wow. So that, was, so that was, yes, that was after you had gotten the role of Christine, right? Yes, I, I was already playing Christine for two years before he joined the cast, so I had a couple of other phantoms before him. And several other phantoms after Ron, because he and I actually only did the show together for four months. And then that's when they moved me from the tour to Broadway, and I made my Broadway debut. So he stayed on the road, and and I went to New York. So, and and it was that way for, for how many years? I think it was about another year. Oh, that. We were apart. And, you know, of course, you never know with these things if it's just what they call a showman, if it's the you know, other characters and if it's really real. Um, but we just developed a really close friendship uh, for a really long time. And we slowly moved in together and then realized this was for life. And I'm so grateful that that he came into my life. We just went to New York last week, as I said, for the for Phantom's 30th anniversary, and we sat there watching the show together and just having so many memories come flooding back of when we first met. And I was able to say thank you to Andrew Lloyd Webber for uh-huh. how the show has changed my life. I mean, it really, it, I never could have imagined that the show would would change my life in the ways that it has. Because of it, I met my husband. I was able to be a guest on the Oprah Winfrey show because of it. And it launched this whole second career that I'm loving so much now as an author and speaker. So I'm just forever grateful. Yes, he's amazing. I love all of his shows. Um, He's just amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was, I mean, that... (laughs) You know, that must have been so, it's an incredibly romantic, Phantom of the Opera is incredibly romantic to begin with, but, um, you know, that must have been like over the top as you were falling in love with each other. <laughs> yes. It's, and we're not the only ones, actually. There, there are two other couples that I know of that met playing Phantom and Christine, or maybe <laughs> one of them was the Phantom and Raoul, the the boyfriend character. But there, there have been many marriages and babies that have come out of this whole <laughs> phantom world. It's, it's pretty wild. <laughs> so then, um, so what did he, did he, 
what did he start doing? I, I gather you were still playing uh, in Phantom, and what did he do? Yes, he went on to do several other shows. He's been in a half a dozen Broadway shows, and uh-huh. right now he's currently he's out on the national tour of the Book of Mormon. So he's, uh-huh. he's actually playing playing Jesus and Joseph Smith out on the Book of Mormon tour. So he, he is still fully in the business and very passionate about it. And, uh, yeah, I was ready to move on to a, a second path, another, another path after my years on Broadway. But uh, my husband it still loves it and still performing eight shows a week. Huh. So, yeah, let's talk about... Um, what happened when you stepped off the stage after the 10 years. Um, then you were, you know, it was, it, was all, um, it was all unbelievably magical, and then you kind of had to face some sad realities. So tell us about that. Yeah, so the year after I left Phantom, my beloved dad died suddenly. He had a heart attack, and, and we lost him. And I also faced a health crisis that turned out to be fine, but at the time it was quite scary. I had a, found out about a little tumor at the entry point of my brain, pressing on my brain stem, and it could have been something very serious, which, it, as it turned out, it was not. But as anyone who has lost someone suddenly knows, or anyone who has faced a scary diagnosis knows it gets your attention in a big way and causes you to ask how am i spending my days how am i how am i using whatever time i have left so i really had to reexamine everything at that point uh-huh. and i had known for some time that i wasn't I wasn't passionate about doing Broadway shows anymore. I knew that I wanted to move on to something else, but for a long time I didn't know what that something else would be. And the, the one thing after another aligned that has led me in the direction of where I am now. Um, and a big part of that really was after being on Oprah, you know, they told my story of shy kid with terrible stage fright and goes on to become Broadway star. And people wrote to me from all kinds of professions say, saying that they saw themselves in that story. And mm-hmm. not that they were doing Broadway. People from all kinds of professions, in finance, in real estate, even the stay-at-home moms. And they said, you know, I, I know there's something more for me to do. And I'm ready to let go of the fear and step into it. So I wanted to really speak to that and break down what has been most helpful to me along that journey to, to encourage other people that, you know, you're capable of a lot more than you, than you think you are. And when we come back, uh, Sandra is going to tell us about that. And that's essentially what her new book is about called Unmasking What Matters, 10 Life Lessons from 10 Years on Broadway, uh, besides how not to trip over the, <laughs> the wires on the stage, right? <laughs> so stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. 
And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today. So contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High definition, premier quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with Sandra Joseph, who um, played uh, Christine Daae in The Phantom of the Opera for 10 years. She was the longest uh, running, <laughs> running Christine. Um, and this is the longest running play. I mean, yes, we were, I was just kind of realizing 30 years. I mean, it is still playing on Broadway, and it is still playing in London. Um, and, you know, I, I think why that is, um, you know, of course it's a testament to the story and the music and all of that, um, but it's, it's a kind, and the, and the romance and all that, but it's a kind of um, play that you can go back to, you want to go back to time and time again. I, I mean, I think, um, sure, in New York there are a lot of tourists and all that, but, I mean, as well as New Yorkers, but, um, but, you know, I think a lot of the people are have come back two and three times. Is that? Oh, yes. Yes, and it's been running so long now that people are bringing their grown children. <laughs> people who saw the show when they were younger are now bringing their children and, and sharing it with a, another generation. It's really fun to see. In fact, one of my... Um, uh, someone that I met during the show posted a photo yesterday on Facebook of the two of us. She was at my Broadway debut, which was 20 years ago yesterday, mm-hmm. and she posted a picture of us in 1998 and then an, another picture from the 30th anniversary back at the Majestic, that same theater, you know, uh-huh. 20 years later. It's just, it's wild. It, it's so rare. I mean, it's the only show that has ever run that long in the history of Broadway. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I love all the things that he does, and I, I wish um, more of his... He, he doesn't seem to be... Um, I mean, I don't know. Is there... I, I wish other of his shows would be playing again and again, too. Like, one of the ones I liked was Aspects of Love. Did you oh, know that? my husband was, was the lead in that. <laughs> I, I, now, I saw that on Broadway. Um, mm-hmm. uh, oh, I, that was that was wonderful. Um, yeah. A little and more right com- now, it, complicated it, than than Phantom, but it was wonderful. Yes, for sure. <laughs> right now, he has School of Rock on Broadway as well. Uh huh. That is, and that one's going very well. But there really is something about Phantom that just touches people in in a, a very deep and powerful way, and. The music, of course, is so beautiful, and the set is just spectacular. Mm-hmm. Visually, it's a stunning show to, to see. But for me, what I think audiences really connect with is this metaphor of the mask. You know, it's such an iconic story, and this is not a subtle metaphor. You know, I think so many of us can relate to the feeling that if, if we really open up, if you really saw me for how I really am and who I really am, that you would run for the hills, you know, uh-huh. that you would reject me in some way. So when Christine is able to finally see the phantom without his mask and she shows him unconditional love and, and she accepts him, she embraces him, 
I think that's what we all crave. We, yes. we all, it's our hearts break wide open in that moment. We all so desperately need to know that who we are in our most vulnerable, most raw, most open place is perfect and not broken and not, I think we feel fundamentally flawed in some way and that everyone else has got it together and, and we're somehow broken and in, in need of fixing. I know that's how yes. I felt. Yes, yes. And so that, the biggest lesson from that show for me was to, to really learn to see each other that way and, the, and to see the most difficult person of all, which is ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so here I would, I would play that scene every night of holding his unmasked face in my hands and just feeling all the love that's ever existed pouring through me and into him so that he would feel seen and loved. But I would go home and beat myself up for the one note I didn't hit the way I wanted to or, you know, find the flaws in my uh-huh. in myself in some way. So after I lost my dad and I had that health crisis, I really got it in a deeper way, the importance of really loving who we are behind the mask and, and letting go of self-criticism and self-judgment as much as possible and learning self-compassion. And that, to me, has, has made the biggest difference in my life. I, I started practicing loving-kindness meditation, which traditionally includes sending loving-kindness toward yourself. Mm. And I think for all of us that beginning from that foundation of self-love, that's the, that's the place where we can start to really drop the mask and become who we've been put here to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And before the break, you were talking about people, you know, well, which I, I guess you were going to say was sort of the germ of the idea for why you wrote the book, people who uh, wrote to you and said how they could relate to that and how they want to move forward, but they're being held back by fear. Yes, or people who feel like they are walking around in their lives wearing a mask in some way, where they might feel like the expectations of other people that are put on them, make them feel as if they have to show up in a certain way, that they're playing roles in their lives that no longer fit or that feel like the round peg in the square hole, you know, that just not able to show up in the world in the way that they most want to now. Maybe certain roles fit at one time, but now we've outgrown them and we're ready to blossom into a new expression of ourselves. Or the other thing we do, I think, is we put those masks on ourselves out of the fear that we're not good enough or I have to show up in a certain way because I want to appear like I've got it all together or I have to be perfect, you know. So I I often ask people, what do you say to yourself or what do other people say to you? What do you imagine other people saying to you? that might be making you feel like you have to wear a mask or show up in a certain way. And then once you get clear on that, can you flip the script on it and ask yourself, what could you say to yourself that would give you the permission and the courage to drop that mask and really embrace the role that you're here to play now that that is the most authentic version of who you know yourself to be on the inside? Yes, and I it, think all it, has to do, there. It, it all has to do with um, childhood, you know, where people, uh, parents, teachers, uh, friends are telling us, you know, sort of criticizing ways that we are and telling us that we should be different or, um, you know, feeling that we, like we failed in something and, and um, wanting to, feeling, like, well, I better not try to pursue that because obviously I'm not good at it or... Um, you know, it's these messages from childhood that, uh, that get in our way, that, that make us take on a mask. The mask grows, <laughs> you know, as we grow yeah. older. And um, 
And then as far as changing from one thing to the other, it's like the fear of the unknown, especially the longer that you wear a certain kind of mask, the harder it is to take that off or to um, switch to a different kind of mask or, I mean, we don't really want any mask, but, um, you know, it's just, it's just the fear of, of the unknown that even though something like relationships that people are in, even though it's not making you happy, um, you're afraid that if you let go of this one, then you're not going to have another one and all kinds of things like that. Or same thing with jobs. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I'm so glad you illuminated that because from you have such a deep appreciation and respect for what causes these things. You have a knowledge that most of us don't have about where this stuff originates from. And the thing is, as you well know, all of the success or external achievement will not heal those core childhood wounds. It might feel good for a while to achieve and get accolades and awards, but if we don't do the work of really looking at what early beliefs were created, then Mm -hmm. we're still, you know, for me, my fear and insecurity, self-doubt just morphed into imposter syndrome once I had all the success. And Mm -hmm. I, I still had a lot to learn about letting go of thinking I had to be perfect or nothing I do is ever good enough. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I, and I think for, for anyone who's achieved a certain level of success, they can relate to this, that wherever you go, there you are, as John <laughs> Kabat-Zinn <laughs> titled his book, wherever you go, there you are. So to me, really doing the work of looking at the childhood stuff and and healing those those early beliefs, letting go of those early beliefs, and undoing that early programming—that's really what what sets you free. Yes, yes. And like you were saying at the beginning about being this little girl in the middle of Chicago in a very modest kind of home and all that. Uh, but fortunately, you know, you had, they had the most important thing, which was the love of your parents and encouragement and all that. Well, we're going to be coming to the end of the show, and I don't want to uh, not have enough time to again tell people the name of the book, which is Unmasking What Matters, 10 Life Lessons from 10 Years on Broadway. Um, You can go to Sandra Joseph's website and find out more about the book and about her, and that is www.sandrajoseph.com. Very easy, sandrajoseph.com. Well, Sandra, you are a delight and um, very inspirational, and I wish you all the best on this new latest uh, leg of your amazing life. Thank you so much, Dr. Carol. Really, it's been a joy speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 